Okay, it's generosity season, and Mag's preaching on the rich man. How conventional. <clears throat> I suppose if I had to do it myself, I'd preach on something interesting to me, like an obscure Old Testament text about a character like Nimrod or somebody cool like that. <laughs> Nimrod is from the Bible, by the way. He was a great warrior, but he's not in the lectionary uh, for this Sunday, so I have to preach what the church tells me to preach, so there. <laughs> Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The rich man leads off with flattery. Good teacher, he says. Social graces of the time required that a compliment be returned with a compliment. The rich man was probably expecting Jesus to address him with honor in return. Instead, Jesus puts the rich man on notice. And he chills the air with his question, why do you call me good? Rather than returning like salutation with like, Jesus heightens the tension right from the start. Now this rich man is set to backpedal from the vagabond preacher. Now imagine the disciples in this moment just leaning in and cupping their ears. Mm-hmm. This could get interesting. You know the commandments, Jesus says to the rich man, who's already probably kicking himself for bringing this up. And Jesus rattles off the list. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear not false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich man, you can just see him just inaudibly kind of checking the list off with self-satisfaction. Do not murder. Got that one. Do not commit adultery. Good. Do not steal. I'm all clean and I sleep well at night. And the rich man just, he's got this. He does note that Jesus ad-libs one of them though. Jesus sort of throws an extra one in. And teacher, I've kept all these since I was a kid, but then Jesus corrects him, and he says, well, all but one of them. And then he says the words that make the hairs stand up on the backs of our necks. Go sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then, come follow me. Now, let's circle back to the ad lib, shall we? Do not defraud. <laughs> there, there are two versions of the Ten Commandments in Torah. And the, the first version you come across is in Exodus, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And then there's a second version that comes around again in Deuteronomy 5, verses 4 through 21. Just to be sure, I reread both of these versions in preparation for today, and you may, may be interested to know that in neither version did I find the commandment, do not defraud. 
And if we follow these commandments in the exact order that Jesus lists them to the rich man, we find that where Jesus says, do not defraud, the scriptures say, do not covet. So imagine that as Jesus is recalling these aloud for the rich man, the rich man is whispering them to himself in unison with Jesus. But while the rich man is saying them from memory, do not cover, covet your neighbor's house, that's when Jesus says over top of him, do not defraud, and there's the rub. Jesus says, do not defraud, because he knows the rich man cannot covet his neighbor's house. And why can the rich man not covet his neighbor's house? Because the rich man owns his neighbor's house. He can't covet it. He's already bought it out from under him. Now, most translators say the rich man walks away from Jesus shocked and grieving, for he had many possessions. And another way of saying it, though, is that he had many estates. To be sure, the rich man had he's many things going for him. They probably, we would probably like him. He's a good man. He's a pious, he's a pious man. We can speculate that he has his life in order. If Jesus confirms that the rich man is following all but, but one of the Ten Commandments, we can rightly assume that the rich man is pretty upright and a respected man about town. Churchgoer, probably a philanthropist, a gentleman, and a scholar. Ties are probably the appropriate width for the time. But, oh, and one more thing. He probably practices mindfulness meditation. Not a bad thing. Just be careful, youth. Be careful if you're applying for jobs in several years and uh, the, the corporate, the corporation that you're applying to work for includes mindfulness meditation in the benefits package. Uh, that's how they, uh, that's one of the ways they just kind of try to numb you. Uh, practice mindfulness meditation so you won't be aware of how they're taking advantage of you. Uh, Jesus practices mindfulness meditation uh, and he bleeds while he's doing it. So remember that. It doesn't only calm you and center you. Anyway, he's probably good at it. But he's also making bank in an unjust economy. He has many estates. He's a landowner. And Jesus is saying to him, in effect, yes, of course, of course, you followed them all. But pray tell my good man, how much are you charging for rent nowadays? What do his business practices have to do with anything? Isn't religion just about what we believe and being nice to people and doing no harm and, and volunteering here and making an offering there? The rich man is stunned. This encounter always reminds me of the rich man who years ago wanted to join the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. It was the late... Gordon Cosby was the founder. Some of you may have 
read books about him. Some of you may have met him before. Cosby was a genuine article. Baptist? No sooner had he graduated from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that the United States was going into World War II. And so he enlisted as a chaplain. And he ended up at Normandy. He was rescuing some of those boys, uh, dragging them to safety. He ended up burying, helping bury hundreds of them, including his best friend. He was awarded the Silver Star for bravery. He came back after the war, started a church. The requirements for membership were, get this, two years of study, a commitment to a mission group, and you had to tithe. And they check your books too. They, you had to show them. Here's what I. Here's my pay stub, so they know what it ought to be. Don't just calm down. <laughs> it's just. It's gonna be okay. Uh, but then a businessman uh, who had many estates, we might say, asked to join, and they told him, "We'd love to have you. Um, first, you'll have to show us your books, of course." And the rich man prayed about it, and he, he ended up not opening his books. And though the church gladly welcomed his attendance, they did not extend membership to him. Now, if we're sitting amongst the disciples in the gospel today, smarting from, from high rent or student loan payments or what have you, and we've just seen Jesus leave the landlord speechless, we might expect the slightest bit of schadenfreude. We might expect just a little bit of enjoyment at this man's troubles. After all, think of how much better off our communities would be, our nation, our whole world would be, without a very small group of people holding a very large amount of all the wealth. If the rich would just share their position, possessions as Jesus calls this man to do, think of what that would do for programs of, of social uplift, for schools, for, for infrastructure, for health, and for churches. I remember a comedian years ago asking what um, all, he, he's always mad, mad at rich people, what are all these rich people going to do with all this extra money? He's talking about billionaires. He said, what are they going to do with this money? Build their own space programs? And as it turns out, <laughs> that's exactly what several of them have started doing. But when we turn and look at the disciples, they're just as shocked as the rich man. Now, here's another rub. Why are they shocked? Because, because now Jesus is elaborating, and they're having a difficult time processing what he's saying at this point. How hard it will be for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are really puzzled now. And Jesus carries on. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier for Jeff Bezos to be shipped cross-country one day than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's not what it says. <laughs> Something about a needle and a camel. Anyway, that was my translation. But if wealth is a blessing, and if it's assumed as it was then, that wealth actually makes a religious observance easier, then the disciples ask, who can be saved? 
And Peter begins even to defend himself and his companions. Look, Lord, we've already left everything and followed you. And all the other disciples are around here nodding their heads. Yeah, yeah, Peter's remembering how he left his fishing boat. And James and John remember leaving their dad with holding the nets. And Matthew quits his job on the spot. No 30-day notice. They've all left something or somebody precious in order to follow Jesus. And Jesus basically says, amen to that. But there's yet more to what Jesus is calling the rich man and the disciples to do. Yes, the disciples have left everything. And Jesus honors that they've done so. But he doesn't equate that with entering the kingdom of God. If what they had done had been sufficient, I suppose the story would have ended there. Rather, I believe Jesus is calling all disciples into a total life submission, not just having done something in the past, but a continual self-giving. Not a life of pious religious observance, not even a life of philanthropy, but a life of total, ongoing submission of all we have and all we are. That's what the early church did. That's what stunned everybody. They became these new little economies in the world that cut across the grain of unjust economies. And they did that by selling land selling possessions and pooling their resources and making sure everybody had enough. It had never been done before. And that's part of what the good news is. That's part of what resurrection makes possible when you're not afraid of death. It's hard to be afraid of giving everything away. But what about our church? Who are we in this story? I've been thinking about this a lot. And I find there's a kind of balance to the characters in this story. I would say if I'm looking out across our congregation, I'm seeing the disciples in this story who, yes, puzzled, but are also the same folks who have given up so much to be here and to make this community a gospel-centered community. But I also believe, and I struggle some with, with thinking it this way, but I want to put it out there, and y'all come along with me, and please don't push me off a cliff after this. But I do wonder if others might say we're the rich man. Not at the end of the text who walks away from Jesus, but the rich man at the beginning of the text who receives the challenge. And now what will we do? Because some might say we have many estates. Maybe not estates, but we certainly have over eight acres in downtown Asheville. And I believe God is calling us to do something special with it. I believe God is calling us to share some of this all of this with our city and world. 
And that may mean doing something a little bit scary. And I don't know what that's going to be yet. But I do know the challenge will come to us, as it does with every church, but especially to our church in this day and time and moment in our history and in our country's life and our city's life. It's a very special invitation to receive the challenge from Jesus and to remember the good news. I won't prescribe anything, but I do know, I think, I believe I know the good news in this story. There's really only one thing Jesus is asking us all to give up. Everything. 